This morning, the children can be dismissed for Children's Church, or actually for Kids for Missions this morning. Kids for Missions. Uh, they're going to be in the Youth Center for the remainder of our time together here. Once a month, they gather together to talk about ways that God is at work declaring his glory among the nations. We're going to be in Psalm 63. Before we jump into that, though, let me just follow up something that I shared earlier during our prayer time. I, I gave you a list of things that, that we might need some help with, and I, and I didn't give you what you should do if God begins to stir your heart. So feel free, if God is beginning to, to prompt you in some of those areas, to, to, to call me, to, to visit with me in the foyer, to call me, text me, email me, any of those things would be, would, would be great. If, if he's beginning to stir that in you, and you just want more information, you're not ready to agree to anything, you, you don't want to, to, to get put into any particular uh, job or role right away, you just want to know more about it, I certainly understand that. So contact me about those things too, and we can just talk about what we might have and how God might be leading you. So please think about that as God begins to work in you. We are continuing on in our series this morning about why we exist, that Richland exists to magnify Jesus Christ. That was what we talked about two weeks ago, that it's all about him. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us together. It is all about him. We exist for Jesus, and everything that we do, we want to magnify Jesus Christ so that people might see last week we talked about. We talked about John chapter 9. About the, there was all kinds of blindness in John chapter 9. Disciples who are blind to the, to the hurting of others. Pharisees that are blind to the magnificence of Christ. Disciples that are blind to the sovereignty of God and his glory ringing out in all things. But the, the main character in the story is a, a man who's been blind from birth, like you and I. And Jesus comes and spits in the mud and rubs that mud on his eyes and the blind man washes in the pool and is healed. And even later as the Pharisees are questioning him, he, he, he says one of my favorite lines I shared with you last week where he says, I don't know all the answers to your questions. I don't know if he's a sinner or not. I don't know those things. I know this. I was blind and now I see. And that that is my hope for us as a church is that we can talk openly about ways that God is removing our blindness. It's not just a one-time blind to sight, death to life, hell to heaven kind of thing. There is that, and we want to celebrate that and rejoice in it. But there's other blindnesses as well, and we need God to continue to help us. We need God to continue to help us to evaluate our heart. We need God to continue to help us to become more and more like Jesus. It's a process, and so we need him to help us to do that. Until one day we will see clearly there will be no darkness, there will be no dimness to it. Our vision will be clear, and we will rejoice in heaven forever with the Savior, and his name will be on our foreheads, as we've talked about from Revelation chapter 22. But today, today we're going to move on to Richland exists to magnify Jesus Christ so people might see, so the blinders might be removed, but that so people might savor. 
Richland exists so that people might savor. Richland exists so that people might find something that they love and truly, truly delight in it. We exist so that people, so that you and I might find joy, might find anticipation, might find excitement, might find satisfaction, might find hope, might find rest together. That we might savor the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that the glory of God, as one man said, might become an all-consuming addiction rather than an all-convenient addition. That we might be addicted in an all-consuming way to the glory of God found in the face of Christ. So, where do we find that in Scripture? Where do we see that theme? Where do we see the idea of savoring Christ together? There's lots of places, but I think one of the best places to see a love song that says, I savor God comes from Psalm 63. Psalm 63 is a psalm of David. And it comes, it's written as David's in the wilderness. You see, if you're looking at the top of, your, of that passage in Psalm 63, that it's a, a psalm of, from when David is in the wilderness. And if you know the story, the story, if you want to read it on your own, it comes from 2 Samuel uh, chapters 11 through 19, if you want to know the story. But the story is that, that David is the king over Israel, lives in Jerusalem, lives in the th- has his throne in Jerusalem. But his oldest son, Absalom, has been hearing from his advisors that he might make a good king. And so Absalom becomes convinced that maybe it's his time, maybe it's his turn, maybe he is the one who should be in charge of the kingdom. And so he is outside of Jerusalem in another city called Hebron, and he announces his own kingship. He is now the king over Israel, even though his father David is actually still the king in Jerusalem. And Absalom begins to put an army together and they're going to come into Jerusalem and David hears that and hears his advisors and knows that if that happens, if, if Absalom and his army come to Jerusalem, there's gonna be a battle and there's gonna be a lot of people that die and Jerusalem might be destroyed. And David knows that what he needs to do is escape and flee from Jerusalem in order to give this some time and to see what happens. And so David flees from Jerusalem to save the city and to save the people from attack. And as he's moving out of the city, there's these detractors. David has people that are against him. And there's one man, Shemai, who begins to throw curses at him as he walks and leaves from the city. He walks along beside him, cursing, cursing him over and over again. And in the midst of that, if you, if you know this story, you know that Psalm 3, the third psalm, it is that story. It, it's David's, David's story as he is fleeing from Jerusalem. In Psalm 3, he writes that and says, God, you are my shield and my fortress. You are the lifter of my head. Salvation belongs to you, God, David says in Psalm 3 as he's marching out of Jerusalem. And David leaves Jerusalem, and if you're seeing that story, if you know that story from 2 Samuel, David 
prays during that time that the advisors that Absalom has will give him bad advice, will lead him astray, will, will give him bad advice which will, which will hurt his, his fake kingship that's happening as he moves into Jerusalem. And David prays that his advisors will give him bad decisions, get bad advice, and in fact, they do. One of his advisors comes to him early and says, you know, David is fleeing from Jerusalem. We should chase him down. We should chase him down, chase his men down, and destroy them now while they're ill-prepared, while they're not ready, while, while there's, his detractors are, are throwing curses down on him. We should chase him down and get rid of him. And they could have probably accomplished that. But another advisor comes and says, no, 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 that's wrong. Let's, let's just settle into the palace. Let's come into Jerusalem and just sit down and relax and enjoy that that we've chased him out, that we're in charge. Let's sit there and do that. And so that's what they decide to do, which now allows David, who's outside of Jerusalem, um, sitting on on a hilltop, looking probably at Jerusalem, thinking about his home, thinking about uh, the, the place where he would go to worship and pray, not feeling the comforts of home, missing the comforts of home, missing the comforts of places where he would gather and worship and declare the glory of God. That's where we come to in Psalm 63. David is longing for the familiar things of home, and he says it this way in Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This psalm of David's, as he's out in the wilderness, his son is on the throne, is a perfect psalm, I think, for us to begin to understand the idea of what does it mean to savor the glory of God in the face of Christ. David begins this psalm in verse 1 with a very personal declaration. O God, he says, you are my God. Savoring, savoring the glory of God in the face of Christ begins with that personal declaration. O God, you are my God, David says. He's not praying to the God of his father, Jesse. He's not praying to the prophet or the judge, Samuel. He's not praying to the God of his forefather, Abraham. He's saying, God, 
You are my God. It is personal. It is intimate. It is close. In fact, Scripture tells us that David is a man after God's own heart. He is a friend of God. And David says, oh God, you are my God. For us to savor the glory of God in the face of Christ, we have to know God personally. It has to be a personal relationship with God. David's cry was personal. In order for us to have a true passion, a true yearning for satisfaction in God, we have to have a personal relationship with him. We have to see our need. We have to come to grips with our own sinfulness, and then we have to trust in the promises of God. It's the only way that we might be able to savor together. We have to have our blinders removed so that we can see God, and then we can begin to savor This was not just a personal cry, though, for David. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. My soul thirsts for you. This is a practical cry for David as well. He's been kicked out of the city. He's he's wandering in the desert. He's living in a cave. He's far from the comforts of home, and he is literally and figuratively in a dry and weary land. We understand this year a dry and weary land. That's where David's is. David is longing both physically, I think, for something to drink as well as his soul is longing for the living water of God. We understand thirst, longing, yearning. We understand that desire because we're wired in that way. And we've talked about that these last couple of weeks. I don't want to spend a long time on it this morning, but, but I have to say it as part of this message that, that we have this, this longing inside of us. We have this thirst inside of us to be satisfied. We are created to worship something. And we will worship something. And there's no better example of this. You've heard me share it so many times. But I love the picture that Jeremiah paints in chapter 2, verse 13. When he says, speaking for God, God says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, And they have hewed out for themselves, or they have dug for themselves, cisterns that don't hold water. That's that's the picture for me of, of our lives. That we're thirsty. We're so thirsty. We need a drink. We need something. We're so thirsty. And there's this fountain of living water, but we turn our back to it. And instead of diving into this fountain of living water where our thirst will be quenched for all time, we say, there has to be water over here in this. And so we begin to dig. And it could be all kinds of things. It could be your, your job, and you just begin to dig and dig and dig, and you work harder and harder and faster and faster. And, and you just keep thinking, if I just work a little harder and go a little faster and dive in a little bit more, I'll finally find the satisfaction, the quench for my thirst. 
but we don't. We just have a giant hole and a big pile of dirt. So we crawl out and we come to another spot and we say, it's got to be here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it in my relationships. I'm going to dig and dig and dig. And relationships don't do it. We have another hole and another pile of dirt. And we cannot find satisfaction for our thirst because we have turned our backs on the living water. It's not just Jeremiah. Jesus says it too in John chapter 4 when he's talking to the woman at, at the well and he says, everyone who drinks this water, this water that comes out of this well that we're standing at, if they drink this water, they're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst again, Jesus says. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Our soul is thirsty. Our flesh faints because it longs to be satisfied by something that can only be provided by God. And our sinfulness, our innate desire to do things on our own causes us to dig holes to find the satisfaction for that thirst instead of jumping in to the fountain of living water. We have to have a personal relationship with God. We have to know that the only place for us to find satisfaction comes in him. And David continues to tell us that here in Psalm 63. David says, my soul thirsts everything inside of me, God thirsts for you, and my flesh, everything outside of me, my whole body faints for you. All of my insides, all of my outsides are looking to you, God. Everything that I am, every single part of me. And so, David dwells on that idea and begins to savor what God means to him. He says, so I've looked on you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your glory in verse two. He says, my eyes, my eyes have seen you, God. My eyes have looked on you. They have beheld your power and glory. In verse three, he says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. My lips will praise you. In verse four, he says, I'll bless you as long as I live. And in your, in your name, I will lift up my hands. My hands will praise you. In verse 5, he says, My soul, my innermost being will be satisfied with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. It says in verse 6, When I remember you on my bed, when I meditate on you in the watches, he says, Every single part of me, my lips, my hands, my mind, my intellect, my soul, Every single thing that I have, my whole being longs for you. And I want to use every part of my being to worship you. This is more, I believe, it's more than just hyperbole in a love song that David writes to God. I think these are these are that. My whole being longs for you, God. 
but I think he's also dwelling on it, savoring it, and giving himself instructions on how to worship. God, I love you so much. I love you so much that I want to train myself. I want to be reminded of in all of those times when I turn to something lesser, when I turn to something that will not satisfy, when I turn to, to something that will not quench my thirst, I want to be reminded, I want to savor you. I want to look to you. I want to say in this moment, Jesus is better. God is greater. And I think he thinks through. And I think we need to think through each of those levels. When my eyes are drawn to some kind of lesser delight, when I begin to covet and lust after something that I see, I should say, as he says in verse two, I look upon you and I behold your power and glory. Jesus, you are better than what I'm seeing right now. When our lips want to whine and complain and lie and gossip, we say, your steadfast love is better than, lift, than, better than life and my lips my lips will praise you because you are better, Jesus, than what my lips want to do right now. When my hands are prone to work or to text or to type something that is unholy and unhealthy, when my hands want to do something that will lead me away from God, I say, God, cause me to lift my hands in praise to you. You are greater than what my hands want to do right now. My mouth, my soul, my mind, all of these things, God, will turn away from you, and I want to turn them all towards you. So help me, God, in that moment when the sin is so big and so great and so much to look to you for my only satisfaction. I will not turn easily. I will not hew cisterns for myself. I will not dig another hole. But I will jump into the fountain. And here's the deal this morning. If we just stopped right there, if we just said David is telling us in those moments when our eyes are drawn to something we shouldn't be looking at, our hands are drawn to something they shouldn't be doing, or our lips are saying something they shouldn't be saying, and I'm just going to try harder to not dig a hole but to jump into the fountain, we would be in trouble. If David was just giving us instructions on how to try harder, it would be hopeless. But he doesn't do that. In Psalm 63, he gives us this list of things let my mouth, let my mind, let my eyes, let my hands, let my soul, let my, let my mind meditate on you. And then he says in verse 7, 4, you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you because your right hand upholds me. 
God, you are the one that does it. There's a moment in the midst of that where I have to think through turning my eyes away and moving my hands away and changing what's on my lips, but you help me to do it. I don't have to do it on my own. You help me. You have been my help in the past. My soul clings to you. And so I trust in your help in the future. In fact, in fact, that's exactly how David walked through this psalm. He savors God in, in verb tenses here. And, and I love this. I, I wasn't sure I was going to share this with you this morning, but I love it. I, I, this is what David does. In, in verse 2 he says, he says I, have, I have seen, I have looked, I have beheld. It's past tense. Verse 3, though, he says, your love is, currently is, better. In verse 3 and 4, he says, my lips will praise you in the future. My will bless you. I will lift my hand. I have seen you. I do right now in present tense rest, and I will trust in the future. He does the same thing in the second stanza. In verse 6, he says, I remember you. You have been my help in verse 7. I have seen it in the past. Verse 80 says, my soul clings to you. Your hand upholds me right now in the present. I am trusting and resting in you. And in verse 5 he says, my soul will be satisfied. My mouth will praise you in the future. I will trust in you. That is savoring. You've done it for me in the past, God. You're doing it for me right now, and I know that when I come to this same spot in the future, because I will, I will trust in you. You will work on my behalf in the future. David savors God, knowing that he is the only hope. It'd be nice, as I studied this this week, I thought it would be nice if verse 8 was the last verse of the psalm. It's a pretty ending to say, your right hand upholds me. And to be done. But it doesn't end at verse 8. It goes on. Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be the portion for jackals. King shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This reminds us of exactly where David is as he writes this psalm. David knows that there is not a pretty ending to this predicament that he is in. Kings don't just retire, and countries don't just have. Two kings, one that sits on the throne in Jerusalem and one that sits on a hillside outside. Something is going to happen. Something has to happen here. Somebody's going to die. And so when David says, when he says, Your love is better than life, he's not singing a praise song. He's saying, if this comes down to the end and I'm 
dead. I have trusted in you. Your love is better than life. And then I think he also is saying, if this turns out the other way, if I end up back on the throne in Jerusalem and my son is dead, your love is better than life. His too. David is savoring God. Even in the darkest and most trying times, David looks to his God with his whole being. And he trusts in the promise of God. He savors God. This morning, I want to close with an invitation through the use of an illustration. And the worship team is going to come and they're going to lead us in worship in just a little bit. But I want to share with you, as we talk about savoring, an illustration that I hope helps you to see and know what it means to truly savor God. I've talked this morning about savoring being a whole body experience, and and I was intentional in the way that works. That it really is about our mind, it's about our lips, it's about our hands, it's about our soul, it's about everything that we are. All of those things need to savor. But you and I both know that savor, savor is a food word. And I have in here one of my favorite all-time foods. This, my friends, is a maple bacon donut. Now, maple bars, have, they have been a staple in my family for a long time. As a kid growing up in California, we went to Winchell's Donut Shop and we got maple bars when I was a kid. We moved when I was in fourth grade and I remember when we moved to Washington, we found the Safeway Bakery that made maple bars just as good as Winchell's Donuts. We love maple bars. They've been a big part of my life. I, I, we joke at my house that I have two superpowers. One is that I can make girls cry with math, and two, that I can make donuts disappear. I'm good at it. And maple bars are so, so good, but a couple of years ago, I had a maple bar with a strip of bacon on it, and that changes maple bars for all times. Maple bars are good, but maple bacon bars are better. And I I did not know this even existed until just recently. Garrett Pearson put me on this. There are maple bacon bars, and then there are maple bacon bars. Oh, this, here you go. Maple bacon bars from Ken's Superfair Foods that are filled with Bavarian cream. (laughs) You have the sweet, you have the salty, and you have the creamy all together in one bite. These maple bacon bars are so good. 
And here's the deal. You can know all about this maple bacon bar. You can know I got it at Ken's Superfair Foods. You can know all the ingredients inside this gooey Bavarian cream, the bacon on the outside. Oh, it's so good, the salty and the sweet. You can have all kinds of knowledge about this. But you can't really savor it until you take a bite. And when you put that, that's so good. I've been waiting for that ever since I picked it up yesterday. <laughs> when you put a maple bacon bar in your mouth and you begin to chew it and those flavors, especially that Bavarian cream, when they begin to mix together in your mouth, you savor that bite. You love it. You anticipate it next time. You anticipate finishing that bite. And the next one. And the next one. You can't just have knowledge about maple bacon bars. You have to experience it. And the same is true for God. I have good news for you this morning. Two pieces of good news. The first is that when you leave this morning out in the foyer, I have maple bacon for everyone. And I want you to try it, especially if you've never tried it, and, and, and especially if you're here today and you think, maple and bacon, and no way. <laughs> you're missing out. You've got to try it. So you'll have some in the foyer as we leave this morning. And this might sound goofy to you, but this is my hope in sharing it with you. One is that, I love to share the things that I love. We'll talk about that next week. But I also hope that when you have a maple bacon bar, when you eat it, when you see it, I hope that you remember this morning. Not that it's Pastor Jason's favorite, but I hope that you remember God and will savor him. That's one bit of good news this morning. But the even better news for us, the psalmist said it, it was on the screen this morning, it's going to be on the screen again right now, Psalm 34, says that you and I are invited to taste and see that the Lord is good. Not just have knowledge about him, not just to hear about him on Sunday mornings, to see him through the glass but we can have a full experience. We can put him in our mouth and feel all of those textures come together. We can know God in the same way that we can know a maple bacon bar. Taste and see that he is good. Jump all in. Don't dig cisterns trying to find a satisfaction for your soul. Don't look anywhere else but savor him. Taste and see that he is good.
and that there's nowhere else for us to go. We're going to jump all in. We're going to dive into the fountain. There's living water there. It will quench our thirst. It will satisfy our soul. And we're going to look to him and savor God. Worship team's going to lead us this morning. We're going to sing. Will you stand with me today? My soul finds rest in God alone, my rock and my salvation, a fortress strong against my foes, and I will not be shaken, though lips may bless and hearts may curse, and lies like arrows pierce me, I'll fix my heart on
prayer this morning is that words like delight, satisfaction, joy, hope, that those might be words, God, that describe our desire for you, that we delight in you and hope in you, that we rest in you, that God, we can taste and see that you are good. That you might lead us to savor in the glory of God through the face of Christ. And now for our benediction from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming this morning. Make sure you grab some maple bacon donuts.